Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Allen White III, who is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina of Charlotte. We had a delightful conversation about all sorts of interesting things, from the origin of life, to what takes to start a startup, to what is bioinformatics. He even gave me a crash course in virology. This episode is just packed full of fascinating facts, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So take it away, Rick. Hi, I'm Dr. Richard Allen White III. I am a computational and synthetic molecular virologist at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I am also the chairman CEO of Raw Molecular Systems, also here in Concord, North Carolina. These are not, these are my personal opinions. They do not explicitly express the views of North Carolina at Charlotte or Raw Molecular Systems. These are my own personal opinions on various questions for educational purposes only. And so can you break down a little bit about what is a synthetic microbiologist? What exactly does that mean? So we'll go back. So I said it pretty fast. So I'm a computational and molecular synthetic virologist. So virologist meaning a person that studies viruses. I study viruses of all domain of life, all domains of life from everything from bacteria, known as the bacteriophage and archaea, they have phage, but then in the crinarchaeodes, they have regular viruses. Also viruses that infect everything from plants to animals to us, humans, right? And so virologist studies how a virus replicates, grows, infects, and propagates itself, and how it interacts with the host. And then, of course, because you have to understand the host, you must understand the immune system of the host and the genetics and the underpayings of the host. So you do a lot of host microbial viral interactions. And so my, my work is at the interface of viruses in the body or in plants or in soils, or even in these things called stromatolites, which are like ancient microbial mats. Computational part is you use computers to solve big biological questions. So you're using algorithms and code and high-performance computing. The molecular part is you're studying the, the bits of the thing that makes up a living cell, such as the DNA, the RNA, the protein, the metabolites, make up the cell, the host, as well as the virus. And then the synthetic part is using synthetic biology, so building the viruses from scratch in order to build therapeutics, in order to alter genetic pathways, and those type of things. But at the end of the day, we're trying to go after big problems. So you have to be creative in using multiple different techniques, using computers, and using the tools that that are available to solve these big questions. So you said that you work on hosts as in humans, as in plants, as in animals, as an environment. How are you able to work on so many different and diverse host systems? Well, I'm inherently systems oriented. You have the microbes that are in the roots. There's the plants. And, you know, really, I work on the guts of things. So I work on the guts of humans and, you know, the guts of humans are attached to the mouth. So you have one long tube and I've been a part of both. I've been a part of the uh, Integrated Human Microbiome Project, looking at ulcerative uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. And I ran the proteomics for that big team science usually. And you're studying, you know, whole systems. So you need huge teams usually. So I'm usually involved in huge team science and then also the fundamentals. Plants wear their guts on the outside. So they have this small interface between the roots called the rhizosphere and uh, with the soil. And that's where all the 
all the actions going on with the microbes and the viruses and the protists and all the things that live there. And so I study the guts of things. And then I still work on these kind of ancient mats. And these ancient mats are just, they're called stromatolites. You can look them up uh, 3.5 to 3.7 billion years ago. The first microbial communities formed in these ancient mats. And I've been working on that in the context of climate change because they turn CO2, methane, and N2O into rock. So can't give that one up. I've been working on it for 15 years and uh, I, I have big hopes that uh, understanding how these microbes turn those gases into rocks can help us solve one of the biggest uh, challenges that we face today, and that's in climate change. You don't just study, you don't just look at one thing, you look at it as an entire system. And I think that science has been, unfortunately, a little bit reductionary. I'm more of a big picture type of person. Yeah, I am too. So would you say like the methodology of studying virology or viromes or microbiomes is all pretty consistent across the different hosts that we have? Yeah, uh, that's the that's the amazing part is that if you extract total DNA from a system or total RNA from a system or total protein or total metabolite, you can study the entire system. And with, you know, next gen sequencing and high throughput mass spectrometry, you can look at the whole thing. You don't have to wait and do one thing. You can look at it all one shot. So this is a sort of a personal question of mine, but as a computational microbiologist, do you believe 16S still has a place in, in the field of microbiology? Oh, this is a good question. I think so. I want to think so. I think it's a useful marker. I think that eventually we'll go whole genome. I think we're already at the place that we can do that now. And I think that once we approve and have longer longer reads. I mean, we not even need to use 16S anymore. We can just use the whole genome. So I think the technology may not be here currently, but in the next five to 10 years, I'd imagine that Nanopore will be the technology that will replace potentially packed bio will still be around. We don't know, but I think that we're getting longer and longer pieces of data. And I think the limiting part is not going to be whether it's a particular gene to do phylogeny or taxonomy or something like that, but it's going to be can you get material out of your sample? I think we're going to have to go back to the kind of wet lab and try to figure that out. But uh, yeah, I think it's still useful. I think uh, we'll have much better and more superb references. Uh, Donovan Parks has put out this new uh, GTDB database that's based on full genomes, and it is, a, it is a pretty good database. So I think, yeah, but I do I think it's useful? I think yes. Yes, and I think that we can say a lot from it. But I think that over time, we'll get more into more to whole genome. Yeah, I agree. I think it's probably going to be a little bit of both, but phasing out the 16S over time. So it's becoming a bit of a tradition on the show that we ask everybody, what is your favorite microbe-inspired drink or food? Oh, boy. That's easy for me. Uh, Beer, period. You know, like uh, beer and maybe even mead. Mead is like the original, the original fermented beverage going back to Egypt, I believe, or Sumer even. Yeah, beer, I think is probably one and then probably bread and cheese. Can't go wrong with bread. Yeah. <laughs> bread and cheese. Yeah, I make my own. Uh, I make my own sourdough cultures as gifts for my other faculty members. I, I drop off various loaves of sourdough bread. I learned how to do that during the pandemic. Oh, that's so cool. So do you, do they share the bread back with you after you give them the sourdough starter? Like, do you ever get to taste it? No one wants to make the bread. So I'm the, I'm the quintessential bread maker. I've made all kinds <laughs> of loaves. Uh, I've made everything with like, made like a, uh, make like a turmeric 
cranberry loaf. I make a double chocolate loaf, a traditional loaf, 100% rye, red wheat. Uh, my girls, my wife and my daughter are, are kind of done with it for now. So I have to, in order to keep it going, I have to give it to other people. And probably all my faculty mates are probably tired of it as well. <laughs> so. When, when I was in San Francisco, we had, I think we just lived off of um, Boudin sourdough bread for four days and it was enough at that point. But then a week later, we're like, we should have got another loaf. Like, it's so good. Yeah, it's really good. That's really good. Really good sourdough bread. So have you ever done any home brewing, make your own beer or mead before? Yes. Yes. I used to home brew a lot. I miss it. I don't have as much time as I'd like to, but I think uh, once I... Once I get like my first grant or something like that, I'll I'll probably get back to it. Or maybe if maybe I'll have to wait till I get my tenure or something like that before I start back up to it again. But yeah, I, I love it. Uh, my cousin is uh, I guess he's a master brewer now in Missouri. And uh, I've always, you know, if I, you know, won billions of dollars or whatever, I'd probably I'd love to use some of the wheat varieties we had in the Pacific Northwest and make, you know, make, have like a micro distillery or something like that. That'd be a lot of fun because uh, with distilled spirits, you, you get like three or four batches in your lifetime and then that's it. But uh, you know, it's a very strong American tradition, both distilling and brewing. And yeah, that would be uh, if I'm ever to retire, I'd probably have like a little brew pub and uh, sell my sourdough bread and call it, a, call it a day. <laughs> Open a little shop. Yeah. That sounds like a good retirement plan. So do you have a favorite microbe or microbial function? Oh boy, that's hard. There's so many, right? There's so many. I think I can't really, I, I just love viruses in general. Like I love, especially the phage, like the phage are the most fascinating for me. If I was going to pick a single organism, I'd probably be the g -phage. That'd be the one I would probably go with. And so the g has kind of a, a legend associated with it is that it was originally isolated out of Bacillus subtilis, the alpha-phage, and they were doing a TM on the alpha-phage. Alpha-1 was a, you know, like a myovirus type of type of phage. And they did TMs and they saw the little phage and then they're like, and then they see a giant phage and they're like, what the heck is that? And sure enough, they tried it in vain for many years to get it to grow and it wouldn't grow back in Bacillus subtilis. And, and the reason for that is that even the auger used to make the overlays was too, uh, were too small for the phage to actually move around. And so they had to use agarose and then they originally thought that it was a Bacillus megatarium phage, but now it's it's been confirmed that it's a lesobacillus, is the actual true host of this organism. And Bacillus megatarium is the, one of the largest known microbial cells. So giant virus, giant, giant cells. And so, you know, it's almost a half a micron in size. Oh, wow. It's got over 700 KB of DNA, which is huge for a bacteriophage. Even like T4, which is on the larger side, is only like 150 KB. So for a virus, it's a giant, right? And so... That's probably my favorite. Uh, yeah, I think the G-Fage. That's my one. That's my guy, I think. Yeah. I don't think we've had anyone uh, have a phage as their favorite microbe yet. So I think you're the first on the show. Thinking back through your journey through life and becoming a computational virologist, was there a particular event or moment, your micro moment, if you will, that you decided you were going to pursue a career in microbiology or virology? Ooh, this is a good one. So I've always been inter interested and fascinated by the natural world. When I was about seven or eight years old, I had my first microscope and I- At seven, you had a microscope? 
I had a little little microscope, little toy microscope and little uh, magnifying glass and, you know, a little kid one, small one. I was like 18 before I knew microbiology existed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was always fascinated, just like Von Landhoek with the wee beasties that live in the live in water and stuff like this. And I was just fascinated by the stuff there. I think for me, where did viruses kind of come into my mind? I think the the movie, The Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and the guy is a virologist and he's trying to save the day. And, you know, it, it's kind of a corny movie now by, you know, it's based on the movie, the book, The Hot Zone. And I loved, you know, when I was even younger, like I loved Jurassic Park. And, but I think when I saw The Outbreak, that movie, it just really, it really hit my, it really hit some tunes with me. But then, but then, you know, I get into college, you know, it's like, oh, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I have a young family. Maybe I should be like a teacher, like a like high school teacher or something like that. And then I had the last course in uh, cell and molecular biology and dates me a lot. We took cell molecular biology, zoology and botany. You know, I don't even know if they teach zoology and botany anymore as separate courses. But that last course, I only got 30 minutes of that course. And she talked about the obligate intercellular parasites and those were viruses and and I fell in love with viruses then, and I haven't ever looked back. And that was almost 20 years ago. So, yeah. So I got one lecture, I think, was the, the candle that broke the back, I guess. Yeah, that's all it takes sometimes is just one thing, and then you become obsessed with it. So can you tell us a little bit more about your career path and how you ended up where you are now? Yeah, so I... I did my bachelor's in cell and molecular biology at Cal State Hayward in California. And then I did my master's in biology, which is mainly molecular virology. I worked on HIV and GBVC co-infection, now human PEGI virus G. It's uh, one of the good boy viruses. It doesn't cause infection and it may inhibit, may help people with HIV live longer. Jack Stapleton has done a lot of work on there in Iowa, at Iowa State. From there, I went and did my PhD at the University of British Columbia. Curtis Subtle, and I worked on microbialites and monostromatolites and viruses and microbial communities and that, and I've been still working on those uh, in Shark Bay, Australia, and all over Europe and Canada and Mexico and you name it. So has your research actually brought you to those places? Like you've been to Australia to see the stromatolites and... I've not been to Australia yet. The goal is to get some funding to go out there. Not been to Mexico yet. I was supposed to. And then uh, I had, uh, had another thing come up and then, then we had the pandemic, so I couldn't go, but I've been all over Canada looking for them. So, and then I did my postdoc at uh, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory under Janet Jansen, worked on soils and gut microbiota there. Uh, I was a research assistant, a research associate at, in a small lab in, uh, in Washington State, uh, working on nitrogenase and diazotrophs. And I still have a collaboration there. Now they're a bigger lab than when I started. <laughs> so, and now I'm here at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And then I started a company, uh, Rob Melicus, system about three years ago uh, to build phage therapy for multidrug resistant organisms. So that's what Raw is trying to do right now. So, so can we talk a little bit more about what phage therapy is? Sure, absolutely. So it's an old dog doing new tricks. We Loria and Fleming, very famous uh, microbiologists. Fleming discovered penicillin. Loria was a hardcore T4 phage biologist, and they have a lot of discourse going back and forth. And 
Loria is like, look, this is not going to work. These antibiotics are going to, you're going to get resistance as quick as you put them out there. Fleming's like, look, you know, we have syphilis and we have, you know, we have a drug that can treat this. And there's this huge, you know, kind of very scholarly discourse that you see between the two of them back in the thirties. And, and uh, within two years of Fleming re- releasing it, penicillin, you have penicillin resistance, right? So Fleming was right. And so now we're running at, we're running an arms race against bacteria, right? And the bacteria can pump in these back, these compounds and pump them right out. They can deactivate them. And so now we have forms of gonorrhea that are multi-drug resistant. There's nothing we can do. Uh, my own mother was killed by a multi-drug resistant organism, an enterococcus fasciitis, a VRE is the one that got her. And so it's imperative <laughs> that we use something that nature has developed its own Excalibur that's in the form of this phage that kill bacteria. That's what they're, that's what evolutionists designed them to do. And so we just have to direct them towards targets that are dangerous. And so I think that we'll have a thing where we can use a virus to kill these pathogenic bacteria or even use the virus to make the bacteria sensitive to antibiotics again. So there would be multiple strategies and not only in people, but also in plants. There's a devastating disease in plants called fire blight caused by a which is kind of the equivalent of E. coli in plants, and uh, it could collapse the pear industry. And so we could use a phage to naturally remediate and bioremediate these pathogens in plants. And so we were fighting not only multi-drug resistant, which is WHO believes that over 10 million people will die every year by 2050 from a multi-drug resistant organism. Every year, 700,000 people globally die from a multi-drug resistant bacterial infection. We'll have up to 10 million by then. So it's a silent pandemic that we need to use phage for, and we can design phage to go and be very targeted. There was a Graham Hatfield has a paper in Nature Medicine, I believe, that the person had endocarditis uh, and was going to die. And they had this mycobacterium infection and they used a phage that they engineered to kill that mycobacteria and save that person's life. Mm-hmm. So what, which organisms specifically does the company focus on? Or is it just all over? We're, we're, we're focusing on fire blight right now. That's our main one. So urinia arvillidium, yeah. So what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about bacteriophage or phage therapy? Uh, I think that we struggle with educating. We talk a lot about, you know, for 30, 40 years now, we've talked about reading and math literacy, right? Writing and reading literacy. I think we need to really talk about scientific literacy. I think it's very clear that what we've seen through the pandemic, the misinformation, that we need to get people up to speed on basic scientific literacy, basic, and it's just not there. And so there's a lot of misconceptions and stuff that's going on because of this lack of literacy. If there is one thing you could do to increase science literacy, what would it be? Well, that's why I'm here on this podcast, <laughs> to ask questions and, and try to get more, I think we need more public outreach to the masses and we have to make science fun again. You know, we're at the point where people don't trust science and people don't trust us. And that that's a sad point. And so what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, I teach, I do some outreach uh, and all, and I try to do these podcasts to try to hit a more general population. We could go back to the dark ages <laughs> where they didn't trust, they didn't trust science at all. And I think that would be a, a very, that would not be a world I want, would want to be in. Yeah, that sounds scary. <laughs> Let's not go back there. 
So what is your top advice for people who are looking to start like a startup company? My top advice, innovation is not only an idea, but it's also market value. So make sure you're going out and asking people whether they would pay for it and whether it has value to them and find their biggest problem. If you find their biggest problem, their pain or their, their what is causing them the most irritation <laughs> that usually, or something that's innovative, it, it, something that's innovative is not only a good idea, but it also has some market value. So really going out and understanding where your market is and where your value is. You know, you can be Avis Redicar and still be, you could be number, you know, you'd be enterprise Redicar and be, you know, number three in the nation and still have a profitable business model. So if you're, you know, out there and you have a good idea, try to get an idea of what that market is and see if someone will pay for it. Because if someone's not going to pay for it, it's not innovation until it's both a great idea plus market value. That's how, that's how you move up in startups and companies. Yeah. So in your startup, is your audience or your market more the growers or is it industry or is it academia or is it? Ours is mostly, ours is mostly the growers for the most part. So how do you communicate with them? Do you have to like go to the fields and like talk to them? Is it hard to? Yeah. You, you know, that, that's the, that's our customer. You literally have to go and have a personal relationship and you go to grow co-ops and you get a, a one-on-one relationship with the grower. And that's usually the best way to um, talk about what their problem is. And their problem is this disease is killing their livelihood. And so what can we do? We can give them this therapy that potentially can help them save their plants. We're still in the beta stage. We don't have our product out in the field yet, uh, but we're processing towards that. Was it a challenge to kind of convince growers to use bacteriophage as a therapy for a plant pathogen? It is still a challenge, but I think that they're willing to try it. Usually it's our organic farmers. They want to try something new that's organic and isn't a pesticide. And like, you know, it's not, isn't a small molecule. And so they're cognizant of that and that they know it's naturally occurring that, you know, and so that's the biggest thing is again, trying to educate to folks that like, you know, there's, there's more bacteriophage in your mouth than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I feel like we should just like reiterate that fact. Like there are more viruses than there are stars in the sky. Like that is crazy. Well, let's, let's do these numbers here. So uh, these are always really fun numbers. So we're really not great at counting RNA viruses or RNA phage for that matter, or single-stranded DNA phage or, or you know, single-stranded DNA viruses because the nucleic acid stain we use doesn't work very well. So most of the time we're only counting double-stranded DNA both phage and, back and, and viruses, you know, phage being things that infect bacteria or archaea, and really only a specific group of archaea, the Eurythiarchaeota. And so we counted in the global ocean and kind of in the world, we believe that there's around 10 to the 31 viruses in of double-stranded DNA that are in the world. This is called the Hendrix number. So that's 10 with 31 zeros after it. That's 10 with 31 zeros after it. So to put that in perspective, the stars in the observable universe is... 10 to the 21. So there's 10 orders of magnitude more viruses in our biosphere than there are stars that are double-stranded DNA, mind you, than there are stars in the observable universe. So you think the number is actually far greater than that? Much higher, much, much higher. How do scientists go about estimating how many stars are in the sky or how many viruses there are? (laughs) (laughs) Well, stars, you know, the Hubble is the big one that helps us estimate that and counting those individual stars. I'm not an astronomer, so that's what I would guess. With viruses, we take a drop of water, 
we stain the nucleic acids and we either use microscopy or flow cytometry to measure the small bits of, of, of nucleic acid stain. And so we usually filter 0.22 filter or even 0.1 filter. This 0.45 filter, some bacteria will get through as well. The giant viruses, stuff like Mimi virus, Pandora virus, those are being missed, right? And we don't really know, right? They get stuck on filters. And then the RNA viruses, they get, you know, we don't stain them very well. And so they could be there present in the sample and we never measure them. Same thing with single-stranded. There was an estimation uh, from a mathematician, I think at Cork University, where he estimated the no total amount of SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19 to be around 10 to the 18 globally. So if you, if you did the mass there and the math and the mass of the virus, uh, it would fit all the virus of all SARS-CoV-2 would fit in half of a Coke can. Wow. So if I was able to take all the virus and put them, line them all, stuck them into a single place, end to end, they'd fit in half of a Coke can. Wow. That's a crazy statistic. I don't even know <laughs> what to say to that. Mind blowing. <laughs> we think of one viral pandemic being around 10 to the 18, almost as much as stars in the observable universe, right? So that's one RNA virus, right? So I would imagine it would be anywhere from 10 to the I would say a safe estimate would be around 10 to the 40 because we don't measure very well the viruses that are in soil and sediments, you know, in trees, <laughs> living in the phloem and the xylem, living on leaves, living, you know, in the air. We, those, some of those calculations are not there, right? And so I think it's a much larger number, actually. And so this is tremendous genetic repertoire, uh, the largest genetic repertoire. It's the, it's the grand library of, of biology. We talk about like great libraries being like the library of Alexandria. No library of genes is greater than, than the viruses. The giant viruses like uh, Pandora virus, uh, it has a bigger genome than many bacteria and has thousands of open reading, 3,000 open reading frames, right? I mean. Oh, really? It's that big? Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Humongous. You know, uh, Pandora virus, I get the exact size for you. <laughs> I guess I don't remember off the top of my head. So yeah, 2.5 million megabase genome. Wow. That's the size of the bacteria I work on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's bigger than a lot of mycobacterial genomes. So what sort of skills do you think are needed or what, what sort of skills do you think were most helpful for you to be where you are today as a professor, as a startup, as a uh, business person? Skills. I, I think it's the idea. So I, I tell this to everyone that I meet. It, it's I've obviously met people that by orders of magnitude more intelligent than I am at Stanford, at you know places I've been, like orders of magnitude. I think what made me different is the never giving up. It was it was always get back up. That's it's worked for me. I'm not I'm not quite to the promised land. I don't have my tenure yet. I don't have a multi million dollar company, but I think tenacity and grit, I guess, is the best way to describe it. You know, what keeps me going is tenacity and grit and that I love what I'm doing. I think if I didn't love what I was doing, I would have done something else. I always say like when when I say I have like a PhD, everyone's like, oh, you're so smart. I'm like, no, PhD is like it's not for smart people. It's it's passion. It's hard work. It's determination. And if you have those three things, you can get a PhD. Exactly. I think that it's it's tenacity and sticking through something, um, being patient and just getting up. You know, the minute it kicks you down, you just brush yourself off and get back up. So what is the the biggest motivator for you? Or like when you're down or when someone kicks you down, how do you get back up? Uh, that's a great question. 
so I think, I think for me, it's friends and family. I think I'm the man I am today because of my daughter. I think that I had to kind of rush off, you know, they say put away childish things. Obviously I, I still watch uh, funny cartoons with her. American dad is the one we like to watch together, but it wasn't just me anymore. It was her and it was my wife, you know, and I, I love them very much. And I do this so they have a better life and that my findings have a better life. Uh, I want, uh, I'm trying to prevent loss, you know, and I kind of grew up with the idea that uh, I want to leave the place better than I found it. I think that's what drives me at the end of the day is like, you know, it does beat you down. You know, there's all this stuff that's going on with the pandemic, but you know, it's not for them. It's for the one that you, you, give them a little bit of information that makes them feel a little bit better or a little safer. And they put a mask on that day. And that was the day that they may have gotten COVID and they may have died. Or they know that I think I'm a reminder. I want to think that I am. And I want to try that I am. (laughs) It's a hard question there. But I think for me, it's you got to have a good network of friends and family that that you can go have a beer with on a day when it's not going very well. Right. I've been very lucky that I've met some great people over my life that have been there for me. I, there's no such thing as a self-made man or person for that matter. It's, it's a, it takes a whole tribe to move you forward. So be kind to the people that matter. Um, there's very few that will matter. There'll be a lot of people in your life that go in and out, but there's a few that are worth your time. Yeah. I think that's uh, some good, wise advice for sure. So you work in both, industry and academia, what are some of the pros and cons of working on either side of that kind of career path? So the reason I work in both is that I love academia. I love the instruction. I love the teaching. I love the kind of university feel. But I learned in this last job that I had that it's not bedside to treatment, that there's something in the in between. And so if I was ever going to make any of my innovations move from just a random paper that I published to an actual thing, I needed to have a commercial entity that would eventually, you know, the IP would be owned by the university, obviously, but then the commercial entity would then license that IP that then would make that into a thing. And you don't really have, again, you don't have innovation unless it's a thing, and then you don't have innovation unless it has market value. So that's, so the idea is, is that just go beyond just publications to actual things that actually change people's lives because technology is what drives us forward. You know, don't, no offense to the structure of DNA. It was incredibly important, but it was the first sequencer that was actually able to elucidate the technology was the thing that moved us forward. You got to have the basics. You got to have the hypotheses and solve the big questions. But until you have a technology that can answer the question, it doesn't matter. That's a very good point. Yeah. So what are, what are, what do you find to be the most challenging kind of transitioning from academia to industry? Did you have any industry or business experience prior to starting your company? Yeah, so I did. I I originally came from industry and uh, I worked at, uh, you know, MRI and I worked at GNC and I worked on nutraceuticals for a long, long time. Prior to doing my PhD, it's what drove me to do a PhD in the first place. You know, I was thinking that I was doing more biochemistry. I still have a strong biochemistry background, but now I, but I focus mainly on viruses because they're the greatest of all biochemists, right? <laughs> so Yeah, there's no better biochemist than in the microbial world.
Exactly. So uh, if you really want to understand biochemistry, you have to understand microbes. So, so that's where it went that direction. But uh, I think, you know, I do both. I, I can, I don't have to pick one or the other, which is a really great place to be. I can be both. And the goal is to, you know, move people, not only inspire people to work for me in my lab, but also inspire the folks that have left, have moved on to other things and, you know, provide be an employer as well. Mm-hmm. How, how big is your company right now? relatively small. It's sweet. It only about like a handful of people right now. That's all you need sometimes though. So if you could go back to your PhD, what, what advice would you give yourself? What advice would I give myself? I don't really think of, I think I, I did my PhD relatively very quickly. I did it. For, I did it literally in four years. Wow. So I can't think of anything that I could have done. I think I would have learned to code earlier because I didn't learn to code until about second year into my PhD. And so I think I would have taken more stuff to learn how to code better my first or second year. I think that's about the only advice I give myself. So what what resources did you have to learn to code? I know that's a big struggle point for a lot of PhDs coming into the field. I think for me, I just, you know, we had, there was, there was workshops in R and then there was just a lot of self-teaching, I think. But I think I would have liked, I think I wish I would have taken a class on some of the more basic software engineering stuff that I learned later, obviously, I think it would have been helpful earlier on. So four years to finish your PhD. That's incredible. Like, what do you attribute to that quick timeline? So I think for me, it was, uh, I got very lucky uh, in that it was, okay, you're going to do metagenomics. You've been doing metagenomics for a long time. You're going to do that. You're going to work on 454. You, I was lucky enough that I ran a 454 at Stanford before I went to do my PhD. And uh, then Illumina kind of came online for metagenomics around the same amount of time and, you know, had to teach myself that. And, uh, but I had a background, a really strong background in molecular biology at that time. And then I just had to learn the rest. And then I, you know, last two years, I learned my, I learned coding and I published every, every chapter in my thesis. So I got very, very lucky, uh, but I didn't do it until after I left, but <laughs> I, I guess it was right place, right time. Yeah. So for those of uh, people who are not listening, can you tell people what, or don't know, can you tell people what 454 and Illumina is? Sure. So these are, so these were next-gen sequencers. They were DNA sequencers and RNA, uh, you know, cDNA sequencers. Uh, 454 is now officially extinct. It was based on emulsion PCR and indirect um, light generated through luciferase, and now it is gone. The Illumina sequencer is basically the air apparent air of, of Sanger. It's a, instead of having chain termination that grows the growing strand through sequencing, you actually have reversible chain terminators that come off back and forth. And so you're basically doing a sequencing by synthesis for both of these platforms. Illumina is still around, obviously. And now we have these new long read technologies, both PacBio and Oxford Nanopore, Nanopore using an actual physical alpha hemolysin pore that actually has, it's basically an inferometer. You have a current running across the biological channel. Every time a piece, every time a nucleotide goes through, you have a spike, you have a raise in going through the pore, and that raise means a single base uh, with PacBio. You're actually threading it through a polymerase, and as you're doing the polymerization through synthesis, you're actually reading the, the DNA. So is your vote for the next like king or queen of sequencing? Is it Nanopore? I think Nanopore is the winner. I may regret this, but I think Nanopore will be the winner. I think having very long reads and having it pretty decently cost effective, I think it will be the 
heir apparent for a lot of the technology, a lot of stuff that I do, maybe not for lots of, maybe not for other applications, but a lot of the de novo microbe stuff, I think, in metagenomics will lead towards nanopore. I think that's my hypothesis. I could be wrong. And, you know, this will be evidence of my wrongness. So <laughs> another technology. <laughs> Recorded forever in history. Yeah, you know, he was wrong about this. But uh, I think for, as of now, it seems to be the the horse that is winning the race. Yeah. So you recently published a paper in Trends Microbiology. Congrats on that, on that publication. Thank you. It's no small feat. Uh, and I, I love the paper title, which is Between a Rock and a Soft Place, The Role of Viruses in Lithification of Modern Microbial Mats. Um, so we, before we jump into the research of this, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about this title. I, often scientific papers do not include puns or play on words, while well, yours does. And I wonder if there was like any pushback from any of the co-authors on this. Actually, it was the co-author's idea. Oh, excellent. So I've been very lucky. The, so what is this first? So we also made the cover in the March issue as well. This made the cover as well in March. You can check that out. So I was very lucky that I've had a long-term collaboration and relationship with both uh, uh, Dr. Brendan Burns and Peter Vischer. So Brendan Burns is out of University of New South Wales. He was instrumental in getting helping me get my PhD. He was He's always been a great friend and mentor. Uh, he's been working on Shark Bay stromatolites for 20 years or more, probably maybe 30 years now. And these are the signposts of the origin of life. And so what are they? They are benthic laminated microbial structures. So you have cyanobacteria that form mats, and then these mats, because of the alkalinity and chemistry of, uh, and hardness of the water, there's all this dissolved calcium and all this dissolved uh, CO2 from photosynthetic alkalization. And then you get you turn these mats into rock over time. And then they make layers. And so these are stromatolites, stromas meaning layered. You know, there's also thrombolites, which are clotted like structures, thrombo meaning clot. And so these are defined by geologists. And so Peter Vischer actually is the one that really got the, he put a bunch of different ones back and forth. And this was the one we picked. So it's Peter's title, actually. So I can't take credit for it. These again are modern versions of ancient structures. So there are our modern laboratory to study ancient ecosystems. And these are some of the oldest structures on earth, pretty much, right? All the structures on earth, uh, they're the, the, if you want to say when life began, you look at stromatolites. And so there are modern versions. They're not, they're, those are not very old, obviously. Uh, but some of the older structures can be upwards of 3.5 to 3.7 billion years old. So the first life as we know it began in these complex microbial communities in cyanobacterial bats. And the reason you and I are here today is, you know, everyone's like, you know, where are the, all the little green men? I was like, well, we have cyanos, they're green, right? So, and the reason that we're all here is because they belched out uh, O2 as a byproduct. Without the oxygen on this planet, we don't have, you know, the grand rusting of the planet. 90% of all the minerals are a process that came after cyanobacteria and the oxygenation of the planets. Everyone talks about mass extinction events. Uh, one doesn't get mentioned and that's the great oxidation events at 2.4 billion years ago, where almost all anoxic life, 99.99% of all life vanished. Again, not talked about as a mass extinction event, but it was, it was the very first mass, mass extinction event. And our, we go from a kind of a pinkish sky to a blue sky 
you know, in a matter of a couple hundred million years. So it's an amazing process. And so I have been fascinated, as I mentioned, with viruses. And it looks like viruses, there's multiple ways that viruses in this kind of perspective could help the process in turning these, you know, greenhouse gases into rock. And so it's the oldest biogeochemical process ever on the planet. 85% of our history, these microbial structures have been doing something like this. So can we harness it to tackle our biggest problem? And that is climate change. Can we use, you know, cyanobacteria and engineer them to trap, uh, to trap, you know, megatons of CO2 in rock? Can we use, you know, Chris McKay wants to put engineered cyanos on the surface of Mars. Can we terraform Mars with cyanobacteria? They terraformed our planet. They're good at it. They certainly are. Yeah. If you want to look for an organism that can terraform a planet, it's uh, it's the cyanobacteria, right? Chris McKay has talked about this a lot. He's a kind of famous astrobiologist. So with this paper and this perspective, it's the idea that we're trying to validate that the viruses might get stuck in the mat. And if they get stuck, there are nucleation points for, for minerals. They may kill in lice. That's what they always do. And then doing that creates resistance and makes mat, the mat structure of the EPS change, which can grab onto more minerals and stuff like that. So it's a continual process. And so in my lab currently, we're trying to validate these various hypotheses that we proposed as a way that there's viruses and viruses as well might be contributing to these things in the marine system called marine snow. So, you know, what is marine snow? It's so it's a are raining down in the water column of marine systems of calcium carbonate. And so you could have blooms of cyanobacteria, 20% of all of our oxygen are from cyanobacteria in the ocean. And then they could be infected by cyanophage. And when they're infected, they could then, the hardness and the alkalinity is right. Uh, they can make marine snow. And so you have these kind of rain down of calcium carbonate events. So I was wondering if you could give us a brief like virology 101 crash course. Like what is the difference between a lytic and a lysogenic virus? Ooh, uh, okay. So crash course. So lytic meaning a virus that actually lyses its cell. It infects a cell. It then replicates and then kills its cell. Process of lysing a cell is a lytic virus. Now viruses can have five main ways that they can replicate themselves. They're also the viruses that are infectious where they infect, but then they don't lyse their cells. Perfect example of this is M13 phage. So it infects, replicates, and buds out of the cell, causes no lysis, but it's still sort of lytic in that, in that fact is that it's able to replicate inside the cell, but then lyse itself, but it's kind of, you know, kind of obligate, I guess is the way to say it. Uh, the other viruses that we think of are these things called temperate phage. So these are phage that are able to be both lytic and lysogenic. So lytic meaning going in, replicating, lysing their cell. Uh, lysogenic, lysogeny is the process of the virus going in, injecting its DNA into the chromosome, either integrating in or being a plasmid or just being a piece of nucleic acid sitting around. And then it just sits and replicates with the genome. So instead of Going into a lytic cycle, it just exists as DNA in the host cell. And in every time the cell doubles, it replicates with the cell. Uh, there's this thing called the Pernod uh, paradox, where it's this paradox that says you can lose over and over again until eventually you win. And so temperate phages are the greatest members of this that break this paradox in that they can lose and they can't necessarily lyse the cell and be have a lytic virus, but they can enter, become a lysogen or a prophage inside the genome. 
and then replicate with the genome forever and ever until eventually they get the right moment and they can become lytic. And so they lose over and over and over again until they finally win. <laughs> it's a strategy. So this is the temperate phage where it could either enter lytic, a lytic phase making more virus and then going off and infecting or replicate as a piece of nucleic acid. Then there are also kind of these other weird ones that no one ever talks about. They're called GTA, so gene transfer elements. And so they were once viruses and they lost their ability to package themselves. And so they only package random bits of the genome and they go out and transfer random bits of the genome to their common relatives. And so you have basically five different ways to be a virus. You can be strictly lytic. You can be kind of obligate where you're just kind of replicating and butting out. You can be temperate where you're both. You can be lytic or lysogenic, or you can be a GTA. Interesting. So how do these different virus lifestyles impact this stromatolite? Well, the thought is, is that the lytic viruses generally will cause selection and resistance. And so if they lyse certain cells, if they lyse heterotrophs, those that lysis products can feed the cyanobacterial mats and increase primary productivity. If they lyse cyanobacteria, they increase the resistance of the cyanobacteria, make them more mucoidal or more goopy, and that allows for mineral sequestration over time. And so they're constantly in this arms race. They, you know, they also, they lyse their neighbor, then they can feed off the dead neighbors and get the nitrogen and phosphorus and all that, and of course, increase in photosynthetic alkalization. As well, the virus can be a prophage and it can enter and and move genes around or have accelerated metabolic genes that could increase photosynthetic alkalization or carbonate sequestration, carbon capture, phosphorus utilization, and all of those can contribute. As well, GTA might also exist in these mats and they're transferring genes around and making them more fit for viral infection, further viral infection. And so there's many different ways that viruses can be incorporated. And as well, the viruses just can, can get stuck in this goopy, EPS cyanobacterial layer, and that in the own can help with carbonation and precipitation of carbonates. So why do we see stromatolites in places like Australia and not all over the world? Well, uh, we do see them all, uh, all over the place. We just don't necessarily know where we're looking. Uh, some of the oldest ones are in, uh, I think, in northeastern Canada, I believe, around 3.7 billion years. But we do see we just don't, a lot of people will go into freshwater lakes and they'll say, what are the, why are there corals down there? That's how they found the ones in Pavilion Lake in Kelly, British Columbia. And so they're everywhere. We just don't know that they're there, right? And people don't know what they are. So we usually ask divers, have you seen any freshwater corals? And a lot of them will say, yeah, uh, they, there is freshwater corals up, up in that lake over there. Sure enough, they're, they're microbialites and stromatolites right there. So they're everywhere. <laughs> we just don't know where to look. Recently, we found some in these poly, polyextremophilic environments in the Andes Mountains in Argentina, and it's completely anoxic. So they're anoxic stromatolites; they're free of cyanobacteria, and so that's really fascinating because we there's a gap of around 500 million years between the Archean stromatolites and the more modern stromatolites. You know, modern stromatolites being you know having cyanobacteria. And so it looks like these mats are a good model to study the more ancient, ancient stromatolites. So if they're not cyanobacteria, what bacteria is predominantly made up of those stromatolites? I will have to look. I want to say that they're Greek chloroflexi, but I may be wrong, but they're different. It's a different mat generation type of, it's a different organism filling the niche of the cyanobacteria. 
And how long does it take to transition from a microbial mat to a stromatolite or does it always depend on everything? It just, it's a very depending. If you looked at Pavilion Lake, we assume that they formed in the last part of the ice age because the lake didn't even exist prior to around 14,000 years. So it took it, you know, so there was probably this rapid, you know, rapid building and then it stopped because we only get around 0.1 millimeter a year now with the growth rate. So we've never gotten to a, a thrombolite as big as a car <laughs> that growth weight in, in 10,000 10, years. And when you ask the native cultures, because they're both holy sites for the native cult, the native, the native population, the indigenous people of British Columbia, they, one lake literally translates in their language, uh, Pavilion Lake literally trans, or I think it's Kelly Lake translates the word as far, uh, frog farting on the lake actually. And because the lake was, I guess, so full of sulfur in, in ancient times, and of course, this is an oral tradition, so you don't know if it's, you know, 10,000 years or 1,000 years ago. But at one point in their oral history, they say that it stunk so bad of sulfur that you would never go near it. And so there's probably all types of sulfate reduction that was being involved in actually precipitating these giant uh, thrombolytic structures. And so I think when we were talking, I think it's through email, you mentioned that you're starting a bat virum project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I am. We are in the process of procuring a bunch of data that's public, as well as we have a collaborator in Michigan where we're going to, I'm going to hopefully go up to this up in the summer to isolate viruses, as well as uh, we have we have potentially a new collaborator with out of Yale that's going to help us cure bats in order to look at viruses and the immune processes in bats. Bats are another I've fallen in love with bats over the lat over the pandemic in that they can carry thousands of different viruses, but then they're not sick. That's an amazing thing. I think that by understanding bats, we'll understand fundamentals of our immune system, and not only that, fundamentals of virology. So I think uh, I am going to move a little bit more towards bats and uh, look at bats as a model for understanding the primordial immune system and how we can understand bats to build therapies against multidrug-resistant organisms as well as viruses. Because big brown bat in the United States, uh, it does it has a hard time holding COVID-19, hard time holding SARS-CoV-2, and so it just and it's hard to even infect them with coronaviruses, right? And so that is understanding that could prevent further pandemics down the road. And a lot of the, you know, an inflammation really is, it's like a terrorist in the cell. You know, it caught, that's the main reason you die from uh, COVID-19 is the inflammation from ARDS is the immune system that, you know, kind of has a scorched earth type of hypo, uh, thing on the, on the cells and that all inflammation causes massive leakage of fluid and you just basically drowned in your own fluids. And so bats don't have this problem. So how can we modulate our inflammatory response to be important when we need it. Obviously, if you don't have a strong pleuroinflammatory response in a fungal infection, so the little brown bat gets hits with this thing called white spot, which is a fungal disease, because they don't have this strong pro-inflammatory response, whereas we don't have fungal disease, right? Because we have this strong pro-inflammatory response. But in the case of a viral infection, if you have strong pro-inflammatory response, you will die. <laughs> so we need that, we need to figure out that happy medium between dialing the immune system to where do we need that whole strong pro-inflammatory response with fungal disease? Absolutely. With a viral disease? No. A lot of the damage that we're seeing in long COVID are a product of inflammatory damage. 
So if we use BAT as a model to figure out that primordial immune system and find out new therapies, I think we'll figure everything out from cancer to viral infection to even helping bats, understanding how to modulate their immune response to handle fungal disease. Because a little brown bat might go extinct if the fungal pat parasite continues. Yeah. So my, my final question for you, well, I have one more after this, but I think this is the final big question. Um, so you've talked touched upon this a little bit about how virology and microbiology is impacting sustainability or can help us combat climate change. Um, how do you see the future of microbiology impacting climate change in a, in a global setting? Oh, wow, that's a great question. So phage 1.0, this was the thing that bacteriophage from the golden age of bacteriophage research was around 1920 to around 1960. And then it kind of vanished, right? Now, but you, because of phage research, we got next-gen sequencing, we got mass spectrometry, we got the genome, we got almost all the promoters you know, that are still used for insulin manufacture, growth hormone are all from phage. And so I think that synthetic biology will be the future of green energy, chemistry. I think that you can make plastics in rhizobia. You can make batteries with phage. You can, you know, you can make new materials with biology and we should inspire people to make new technologies through biology that are sustainable. Plastics last thousands of years. We can make a bioplastic that lasts an afternoon. <laughs> and so I think well is manipulating whole biogeochemical processes. Think of phone booths that suck up CO2 and turn that into concrete and the concrete created through biolithification by cyanobacteria is a stronger material than mine concrete. Concrete mining is a huge carbon, it's a huge carbon hog. It requires ton, megatons of petroleum to keep that going. Think of biology doing that. You know, another thing is, another one that we study a lot is uh, nitrogen fixation. You can make the most sustainable, awesome switchgrass algae culture ever, but you need nitrogen without the nitrogen. And if you use petroleum to get the nitrogen, you're not even getting carbon neutral, but biological nitrogen fixation is the reason, again, another reason why we exist. And so using biological nitrogen fixation to pull that down at, in a megaton way to use the Haber, instead of using Haber process can be a sustainable way to make bioenergy. So what are the big, what are the big things we need? We need nitrogen biologically fixed. We need carbon, we need car, uh, concrete that is fixed through biological means. And you fix, you, you reduce our carbon footprint tremendously by doing that, tremendously. And it's a better material. Why bother mining it when you can have bacteria do it for you, right? Bacteria make beer and wine and cheese. Why not have bacteria make, make uh, fertilizer for us? Why not make, have bacteria make, make our buildings for us? Why not have, you know, make a car out of bacteria at this point? Like uh, the, you, the sky is the limit on what can be done with bacteria and viruses. And so if you can imagine it to be a thing, do it, <laughs> make, get a, get money, make a company, make a startup and do it. I heard the other day, these guys in Finland, they found a way to make vodka out of CO2. Really? That's cool. Fascinating. Absolutely. You can look it up. 
And so they have a startup that make vodka, maybe, maybe not true. I don't know with startups these days, but they, uh, they are able to fix carbonates. Uh, and then there's the, you know, there's a company out of Squamish, BC that has a way to make a carbon neutral fuel. So I think we must invest broadly in, in these synthetic biological processes. And I think that synthetic to the biology will be a $3 trillion plus million, a trillion dollar business. And I think a lot of businesses, if they get on the track now of using synthetic biology, using biology to build these things, uh, not only will it be sustainable, it will be highly profitable, it will make more jobs, and it will, be, and it will allow us to clean up the byproducts of the original industrial revolution. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think microbes are a solution to so many problems and we just have to learn their language a little better. So thank you so, so much for being on our podcast today. I learned so much and I hope everyone who's listening has also enjoyed it. Uh, Can you tell people where they can reach you to uh, talk to you more? Yeah, sure. So again, uh, you can just Google me, uh, Richard Allen White III. You know, you can go to the my faculty page or uh, rawlab.org is where our research page is. We're still working up the website, so <laughs> it won't be too harsh. So that's where I can be reached. And I'm, I'm always open for questions and, you know, collaborations and those type of things as well. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the show. It's been so much fun. You're welcome. Hello, Microbial Nation. It's me again, your microbe-obsessed host, Tess. And John, and we need your help. That's right. You see, we want to improve your listener experience and provide higher quality audio for all of you to listen to and enjoy. With your help, we're looking to raise enough money to get some higher quality microphones, an audio mixer, and some editing equipment. If you'd like to help, there's a link you can follow in our show notes. Or you can find a little coffee cup at the bottom of our homepage at microbegals.com. Really, every little bit helps. Up until now, we've been able to provide all our content for free. And we want to keep providing you with ad-free and high-quality microbe facts, interviews, and history snippets. Any amount is welcome, and we are so grateful for you and your support. As always, thanks for listening. Keep your microbes happy and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Well, Microbial Nation, thank you so, so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this little interview with Dr. Richard Allen White III. As always, if you like today's show, please share it with a friend or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, we hope you and your microbes are staying fit and healthy for the summer. Bye!